It's been a while since you put me on the shelf. I know you've been distracted by somebody else. It's been a while, but that's all right, you see. And I'll be right here waiting when you want to play again with me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Cult of the Old. I'm Ian McAllister, and I'm joined as ever by Matt Thrower and Nate Owens. How are we doing, gents? I'm good. Coming, still, still calming down after the excitement of Halloween. Ooh, spooky. Doing well, comrade. Doing well. <laughs> Doing well, comrade. Ooh, spoilers. <laughs> yeah, spoilers. Spoilers for the next game we're going to talk about. Well, what is this cast about? Well, each episode, I and Nate and Matt are going to dive into the tabletop gaming past. We're going to turn back the release schedule at least 10 years to look at games that were setting tables ablaze in the dim and distant past of a whole decade ago. Over the course of the season, the games you're going to cover will still be available to play either because they've become evergreen titles, that's they're always available at retail, or they're accessible through illegal digital means, like Board Game Arena. Now, recent history has had a lot of people thinking that we've retreated to the days of the Cold War. If you don't know anything about that particular period of world history, then you could do worse than play the game we're going to talk about today. A two-player, card-driven war game where one player takes on the mantle of the former Soviet Union, and the other the might of the West. We are, of course, talking about a game that sat at the top of the BGG rankings for a long time, Twilight Struggle. So, gents, who wants to take on Twilight Struggle in 60 seconds? Well, given it's, uh, I've billed it as my favourite game, I think, uh, I think that's, that falls to me. Um, do, we, uh, do I get timed for this? Uh, I've got a timer on the phone here. Hold on one second. Here we go. All right, and go. <laughs> Okay, so Twilight Struggle is a card-driven game where you play cards from your hand to spend influence that advances um, your control of countries and a point-to-point map of the world. But the really interesting thing about Twilight Struggle is that events are keyed either to the American player or to the Soviet player. And if you play, you can play one of your own cards without penalty. If you play one of your opponent's cards, you get to spend some points, but the event on that card is also triggered. Your opponent gets an advantage from you doing that. There are various ways to try and nullify that that extra event happening. And the game is won generally by scoring points, which you do. There are cards in the deck that score a particular reason, and then then the player that has the majority of countries and particularly key battleground countries in that in that region gets a ton of points. Um, and it's either the first to 20 points wins or until final scoring right at the end of the game after 10 turns very good five seconds to spare very impressive Ooh, real good matt Uh, the game was originally released in 2005 designers were jason matthews and ananda gupta who are both first timers on the game publisher was gmt games artists were victor sassetti roger b mcgowan chechu nito Guillaume Reese and Mark Simonich. It's not won many many awards apart from the 2005 Charles S. Roberts Award, which is sort of war games equivalent of the Spiel de Yara as the best modern era board game. Uh, It's still very available in shops and it has an excellent app that you can get on mobile and uh, Steam as well. So, Jens, how did Twilight Struggle do you come to be? What were the influences on this game uh, as, it, as it sort of came to fruition and came out came out to the public? Well, I think unlike a lot of the games that we've discussed, which have obviously been pulling all sorts of design ideas from, from a, the general gene pool of game design, I think Twilight Struggle's actually got a quite a clear history of influences. Because um, card-driven war games, this idea where you have cards... Uh, uh, that you play to affect things on a point-to-point board, um, and the cards often represent particular historical events, uh, has a fairly long history. It dates back to, um, oh, that's not Washington's War. Um, We the People. We the People, that's it, which was republished as Washington's War. And that eventually, you know, that, that lineage eventually led to something called Hannibal Rome versus Carthage, which was the first one, I think, that had cards that were key to one side or the other. I think that's right, the first one. And so Twilight Struggle took that concept, took away all the military aspects, because a lot of these games are quite complicated. They have rules, you know, for generals and manoeuvre and and surprise and ambushes and all that kind of thing. All that stuff went out the window. So Twilight Struggle, it's not a simple game, but it's significantly, significantly simpler than some of its peers. And tried to turn that 
to make because they've all got all these games have a, a degree of political control as well. They 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 view conflict as a means of political control. So in Hannibal Rome for, for versus Carthage, for example, you know you have to have troops in an area, um, or you may need your troops to enforce your control of an area. But you're still got that same basic thing of laying influence counters from one point to the next point, uh, and trying to maybe use your own troops to push. Uh, the enemy influence counters out the way. So it took away the military thing, turned it into a wholly political uh, or largely politically themed game that was suitable for the Cold War. Very cool. I didn't know about many of those games. I knew about Rome versus Carthage a little bit. I think it had a reprint in not too distant past. Yeah, like 2018, 2019. Yeah. It's had a, I've, I've been in this hobby long enough. It's had a couple of reprint cycles that have gone and then passed out of print and i'm sure it'll come back again at some point if it when it goes out this time the, there, there's an interesting kind of first of all if you if you have a physical copy of twilight struggle you look in the rules there's a great a, a lot of war games have this where you'll have a, a a page just sort of with this is what it was like for me to design this game and jason matthews wrote it and uh and it does it talks about we the people hannibal uh games like that and then there's longer games as well, Paths of Glory, Here I Stand. Those are, I think, is Here I Stand card-driven as well, Matt? I think it is. Yeah. Um, so it talks about those. I, I, I find a weird kind of, not influence, because I think if it had been a, an actual influence, it would have been written in that little piece. But a weird kind of parallel thing happening in this game that happened with uh, the German game El Grande. El Grande is a game from the mid-90s, and uh, it's more about moving around influence as opposed to moving armies on a map. It's sort of a, a abstraction of what was a traditionally, you know, kind of chucking dice kind of war game like risk or Axis and allies. And it just kind of boils that down to a very, you know, a game of political influence and backstabbing in a kind of an abstracted way. And there's, you know, Twilight Struggle is not nearly that abstract, but it's doing the same kind of thing for card driven war games. It's taking a lot of the same qualities, you know, abstracting, taking an abstract quality like political influence and distilling that down to just a couple of really just a couple of mechanics. It's it's actually a really lean design uh, in a way. But yeah, it's worth mentioning that El Grande is another game that we could easily be talking about in this season. Yeah, it's, it's not in print. No, yeah, it's, it's not, not a right, right now, it, but it is available on BGA to play if you do want to try it out, and it's quite a good implementation as well. I've, I've been playing a little bit of it. And it's one of the nice things about those platforms is that you can try games that are out of print, which is great. I've been I've been yeah. playing and losing on yeah, BGA until Grande. Uh, so, where did you guys first encounter Twilight Struggle? Then, how, how did you first come across it? I have a very distinct memory of my first time going into a game store. Uh, this is probably 2006, I want to say. And I was, you know, I just, I think I'd played something like, I don't know, Carcassonne or Ticket to Ride with a friend of mine. And I'm like, well, I want to go. He's told me, there's this store. So I went to this store and I was poking around the store looking at just, you know, this ridiculous number of games. I didn't, this is before I had been on Board Game Geek, before I had any kind of, you know, insight into this hobby at all. And I saw this game and it just stood out to me because it had a big hammer and sickle <laughs> on the side of the box. And I thought, oh, I, that looks neat. And it's like, oh, the Cold War is pretty cool. And I took, I looked at the box for maybe 30 seconds and thought, whoa, this is way too complicated for me, which is probably true in 2006. Uh, and it wouldn't be till I think two or three years later that I got my own copy and I got a first edition copy. I think someone was unloading their old first edition copy because it didn't have the mountain map and it had misspelled the nation of Chile and it spelled it like as in like the soup chili. And um, that was a very first first printing. I'm only familiar with the I must only be familiar with the second edition. I'm familiar with the cardboard map. Did the first edition have just like a paper map? It was, it was uh, like in college. Yeah, it, yeah, it was oh, cardstock. The, the kind of thing you'd make like a cereal box out of. Oh, okay. um, right. Yeah. So that was my first first copy. And then I eventually bought one of the, my first P500 on the GMT website for people who know what that is. Was, was for the, ask, was, it, was it a P500 game originally? It, all, it, it always was. I think it, Matt could tell you better than me, but I think it spent a good two or three years on the list before it finally got published. For those not familiar with P500, it's basically proto-Kickstarter that GMT run. Effectively, they put games out and reprints of games as well. 
And mm-hmm. once they get 500 pre-orders or more, they put the thing to print and actually produce it. Maybe print, printing more than 500 copies, but they know then that there's demand for the product and they they reprint it. So, yeah. sort, of, sort of a proto Kickstarter, but only for GMT. Right. These days, it's really functionally more of a P1000, um, P750 or so. But yeah, they still use it for all their new releases. How did you encounter it yourself, Matt? Well, it, there's actually a, a bit of a, it's a curious story, this. I used to, I've always enjoyed war games, uh, or I've enjoyed, it was enjoyed the idea of war games, of sort of like historical simulation uh, games. Um, but I played very few uh, when I first encountered Twilight Struggle because at that stage of my gaming career, I, I very much favoured multiplayer games. I liked sort of the diplomatic element, the, the backstabbing, you know, the table talk, the trash talking that went around, you know, getting a load of people, the social aspect. So I was really focused on multiplayer titles and I didn't really have a lot of interest in two-player games and the vast, vast majority of conflict simulations for fairly obvious reasons are two-player. And so I also wasn't very interested in the Cold War. So when this thing began to shoot up the charts uh, and, and, and into the wider gaming consciousness, I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, it sounds interesting. Doesn't doesn't really appeal to me. And then I, I don't remember who. I wish you'd remember who, but somebody on a forum somewhere persuaded me to try a game because it was, it, it, it still is. Uh, well, we'll probably talk about some of this stuff later. Very easy to play on a um, a, a card counting website called ACTS, A-C-T-S, Automated Card Tracking System. And this is fine. You can just play it by email and we'll, we'll keep a track of our own maps. Uh, and so I thought, you know, no, no, nothing ventured, nothing gained sort of thing. So I'll, I'll give it a go. And I really just bumbled around for the first couple of turns. And, and by the time I was in my third turn and we played the first couple of scoring cards, I was just absolutely hooked on this thing. I was I was so excited by it and so thrilled and so blown away by it that I think I started another game before I'd finished my first one, you know, with somebody else, just finding another opponent. It, 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 I was just so, oh, you, you could, it, it had me by that feedback mechanism where you look at the thing and you see, oh yeah, with that card, I totally see what I did wrong. Oh, with this card, I completely see, I'll not do it better next time. And it just got me in that feedback loop of, oh yeah, I can do a bit better, can do a bit better, can do a bit better. And, and I love it. I absolutely love it. I think I've played it close to 100 times now. And I, I've been through various physical editions of it as well. Like Nate, I started out with the paper map version um, and I've upgraded it to the uh, to the um, mounted board version. I missed out on the collector's edition uh, for reasons, you know, when we talk about versions, we'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, I absolutely love it. And, and I still play it. I've had a great time playing it with you guys. Uh, any excuse to break the damn thing out. Absolutely love it. Where did you first play it, Ian? Uh, yeah, so I... Th- I actually, I did actually buy it because I was, I, for a long time, I think we've talked about this on the cast before, like I, I, well, at one point my collection was like, well, I'm a critic, therefore I should have like examples of these kind of games in my collection, right? That was kind of my attitude to building my collection. And so one of them was like, I didn't really have a war game in my collection. I didn't really have any of the sort of card driven war games I'd seen. And Twilight Struggles seemed like the most approachable one out of the ones I'd seen. I read some reviews, got some, got an idea of like how it played. And uh, my now co-host, um, Jamie, on, on the Brainwaves cast is very enthusiastic about the game as well. And I played it a little bit, but I just never got to the table very much. So it's not it's no longer in my collection because I just didn't get to play it very much. And I don't like games just sitting on a shelf, not getting played. So I did eventually I did eventually move on. But I think I just like picked it up because I wanted like an interesting, pretty like relatively complicated two-player war game kind of thing that I hadn't really experienced. And like yourself, Matt, I was t- I, I love one of the mechanics I absolutely love is multi-use cards. Just adore multi-use cards. And Quiet Twilight Struggles cards are kind of multi-use. They're not quite as like versatile as in some games, but they've got that feature to them. And it, it, I'm sure we'll come to talk, talk about this. Like, it's quite simple, actually, in a lot of ways. Like, it, it's, very, it's very straightforward, a lot of the ways that you can manipulate the various sort of like areas of control and, and how you manipulate a game. It's quite straightforward. So it appealed to me for a little while. I just never got it played very much, unfortunately. So yeah, I just moved on, and now I've been playing a bit with you guys on the app, which is superb. The app is great, really good, lovely implementation by Playdeck. I think do that, and it's not very expensive. You can get it on like your phone or on Steam, so that's really nice. And it's nice to sort of revisit that game and remember why I did like it initially. So it's had a couple of versions, as we've said. Like so, it's had, it had the original first edition was a paperboard, um, and then the version you can get. Uh, 
in lots of places still uh, is a sort of like fold out card uh, sort of thick board map as you would expect with decent card stock there's clutch edition do you know what was in that chaps because I, I wasn't actually aware there was a clutch edition yeah so so um gmt it got very confusing because the, the the one on the mounted board is known as the deluxe edition so they'd already had a deluxe they'd already used the deluxe label for the mounted board it, that edition also has some additional cards in it which are labeled as optional yeah. cards but they're actually just widely used now they, they've become kind of standard yeah and they're good cards. They're good cards, and, and most players like to have them added in. Um, but the collector's edition was a one-off um, that GMT did. I don't remember the date. I didn't look it up. It was it's a few years ago now, and it came in a snazzy wooden box and had chunky influence counters instead of the, the the just the standard cardboard chits that were used for, for other things. Um, and I believe it had revamped card art as well. And um, so I think the card art was different. Uh, and because it's my favourite game, I very nearly and almost pitched in for that. But in the end, it didn't. Because to be honest, I thought it looked kind of ugly. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm completely honest. Um, and really, you were just paying a lot of money for a wooden box. Um, so so I, I bailed on that. Um, yep. And then it was uh, 2016 that got, uh, got released in 2016. I think again at the same time um, because I think this is also the same time the app came out. I think there was a, just a general a general sort of flurry of releases around this time for Twilight Struggle. There was also a Turn Zero expansion, this little expansion that allows you to play some cards to determine the initial state of the board rather than just have the default oh. one from the rule book um and it was ignored i think pretty much ignored at the time it's got a lot of traction since and um, players like it especially very experienced players because you know it's, it's different opening setups makes the game unfold in different ways um but it does of course if you play it adds significant not not significant but it's already a fairly long game they, they say you can play twilight struggle in an evening but you've still got to find three or four hours realistically to do it unless it ends early um and you don't necessarily want to spend an extra 20 minutes doing the the turn zero stuff um and one of the most interesting things about twilight struggle to my mind in terms of the the versions and stuff is all the promo cards so there's loads of promo cards that have come out but they're not oh, english really? they're not english oh. there's like um it, like different territories seem to have their own promo cards like italy has Anni di piombo which is a uh, um, the years of lead something to do with political violence in italy you know i don't remember i don't know them all um and mo- a lot of them haven't seen english printings i don't think uh, they're, they're not generally regarded as being that to play or perhaps like balanced but but they exist you know can you you can hunt them down if you want there are some other English promo cards, too, that have come out in the last five, six years, I think, that were available through, like, the Board Game Geek store or through GMT's site only or something, and it's like a half dozen cards. And I only knew that because when we were playing, when I was re-downloading the app in preparation for this episode to play with you guys, I, they gave you the option, oh, do you want to play with the bonus cards? And I thought, those, those aren't the optional cards from the deluxe edition. Like, what Matt was saying is, like, because I always play with those. No, it was some new kind of card that I hadn't seen. So, cool. seems like an odd game to have like promo cards for. I don't know why it, it it feels like an odd game to have promo cards for to me. I I think it's strictly for people to say they have them. It's just a little collectible <laughs> yeah. thing, which is which is totally fine. I mean, they're not. I think the fact that they aren't serious cards, it sounds like, is like it's just the kind of thing you'd be like, oh hey, I got this cool little thing that, you know, almost like a like a like a kickstarter stretch goal except these aren't used as an enticement to make you pay more money for it up front so one one thing about it there were a lot of variants that got incorporated as well the chinese civil war variant which i've never actually played with but that was i think that it came out in gmt's magazine didn't it originally matt and then it got incorporated either i'm aware of that played either and then it got incorporated into the deluxe edition because there's a little box there that says oh china the chinese civil war kind of thing because normally china in this game for those who haven't played it's abstracted with a single card and it's a card you just play it and it belongs to either side but when you play it you give it face down to the other to your opponent and then on the next turn they'll get that card to use and you can just kind of swap it back and forth then there's also the late game variant because twilight struggle we'll talk about this has a tendency to end early and you don't always get to the late game. So as people who wanted to play the ages of, you know, Gorbachev and Reagan and Carter have the option of doing a, like basically doing a, a, an advanced setup to the game where it'll sim like the first six, seven turns. And then you just play with the late game cards. 
so you get to use them more. That was also incorporated in, into the thing. So there's stuff like that that kind of keeps on getting, you know, put out in GMT's magazine or on the forums or something like that, and then gets incorporated down the line. Just to emphasize what we said about the promo cards being for fun, there's actually a South Park one. Blame oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> that is my goal. Tommy's killed Kenny. <laughs> What do you chaps think was the impact of Twilight Struggle at the time when it, when it came out? What was the sort of critical reception and, and how did it impact the hobby? I think it took a few years to impact the broader hobby. I think its immediate impact was among wargamers. And wargamers are kind of their own, you know, there's some overlap between hardcore wargamers and like, we'll call them board game geek hobbyists. But the, the Venn diagram was pretty slim uh, for a long time there. And so while I do believe Twilight Struggle was in the top 10 pretty early on, I remember seeing it up there. It, it, it was oh, always had play numbers that were a lot lower. And I don't think it was really until the deluxe edition came out 2009, 2010, that it sort of started gaining some momentum as a game, not just for war gamers, uh, which, you know, you mentioned, Ian, earlier why, you know, it doesn't get, didn't win a lot of major, like, broad hobby awards. And I think that's a big yeah. reason why. It just didn't, its its immediate impact was in the wargaming community. Matt can probably con- confirm that better than I can. Well, if you remember, Nate, what I, the trouble is, although I was interested in games, uh, when I first played Twilight Struggle in war games, uh, I didn't play that many because I had this preference for, for multiplayer games. And actually, Twilight Struggle, I enjoyed it so much that it that it opened that door for me and so from twilight struggle i went to to play um i think it was hannibal run versus carthage i can't remember and then from there i've gone on to play washington's war loads of, of card driven games the whole family of card driven games i really enjoy as a whole some of them are a bit too complicated but they're, they're still great fun uh, and from there i'd got it i've got into more traditional uh, two-player war games and i think i suspect that's actually the biggest impact it had at the time, is that it opened this whole world up, this whole fairly hermetically sealed world that had built its a wall around itself to some degree with a reputation for, for complexity and difficult themes, you know, and long games uh and, and it, it felt like this this thing that people kind of were a bit in awe of um but but didn't dare dip their toe into and i think for a lot of gamers twilight struggle made the whole broad fascinating world of war games that much more accessible that much more desirable to crack into it's like oh hey look if this awesome thing has floated to the surface what else might be hiding underneath maybe it's not so difficult as 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 we thought maybe it's a whole lot more exciting than we thought um and certainly i remember at the time people were uh posting more and more recommendations and suggestions like oh yeah if you like twilight struggle have you tried hammer of the scots if you like twilight struggle have you tried playing or oh, uh, a victory lost and things like that you know there were these recommendations about introductory beginner war games and and i think that whole world really was just launched by the success that twilight struggle had you know it wasn't immediate as nate said but as it built momentum it kind of broke down some of the walls around wargaming as a niche genre I, I, I don't think that this is something that Jason, that Matthews and Gupta really set out to do, but I think kind of accidentally it ended up feeling like one of the very earliest synthesis designs. It wasn't a synthesis of Eurogame ideas because it was, it's, its lineage is very wargamish, but in abstracting things and in uh, trying to simplify and streamline the game mechanically, it kind of accidentally you know, it's kind of retroactively considered kind of one of those first crossover games. It it employed a lot of the same principles that drove the design process of a lot of early German games, except they weren't, they were coming from the, the, the angle of still of historical simulation. I think it's a, it's an early game in that process of just of the, of the genres blurring together quite a bit, even though it kind of wasn't that, <laughs> Its genre is, is a, like its lineage is pretty distinct, but in, in doing what it did, it kind of moved it into this other area uh, simultaneously. And it certainly put GMT games on the map for most hobbyists. I would say that GMT is, oh, GMT has been a big player for a long time. 
they are one of the premier war probably since since it, and i don't you know some wargamer can email us or send us something to let us know if i'm wrong <laughs> but i think since the demise of avalon hill gmt is probably the premier wargaming publisher and so they had had lots of success before this time but this was the first time i think anyone had heard if, they, if you weren't already a wargamer, this was your first exposure to GMT. And indeed, I think it kind of opened up what they started doing as a company then. Now they've really, they've really kind of broadened what they do, I think, in the wake of this kind of mainstream hit that they kind of backed into <laughs> without really meaning to. Some of those games are really big, stuff like uh, Dominant Species is a good example. Some of them are other war games that are similarly abstracted, but are completely different genres, stuff like Sekigahara, which is an amazing game, but it's a block war game more than it is a card-driven one, although it has cards in there as well. I really want to play that one. My, my co-host Jamie from, on Brainiacs has got that, and we've been meaning to get together to play that, because it, it looks amazing. Oh, it's it so good. Great. That game is so good. <laughs> so I, I think GMT, it, I, I think it opened the horizons for what GMT could be as a publisher. They're still very much a historical simulation. Like, if you go to their site, there's lots of hours-long, complicated games about obscure wars and World War II, and so you can find that. But it, it, it really has kind of broadened who they are, I think, in the wake of this success. It, it's an interesting one because it, it, it obviously came out and you, we just talked about the sort of impact right at the time, but it only really came to like BGG attention like a few years afterwards and it like shot up the rankings and it hit number one and was number one for a good long time. Why do you think it's, it sort of suddenly got that, that push several years after it came out? Did, was it just a slow burn or was, did something happen? I, I don't remember anything specific. I, I would guess it was a slow burn. Uh, you know, it's a sleeper hit. As I said, as we, you know, th this is a thing. GMT was, a, as Nate says, a relatively obscure publisher. War games as a whole was seen as a fairly niche corner of the hobby. And, and it just took a yeah. while for, for, for it to spread out of that niche, I guess, um, propelled by its own brilliance. I, I think that's probably accurate. I, I do think that the deluxe edition, which I, my box says 2009, or no, my box says 2011. So that means I, did the P500 in 2011, and that was the second printing of it. So go back a year to 2009, 2010. That's five years after the game came out. It had gotten a couple of printings in the old cardstock map. And it was a, it was a, not a huge deal, but a moderately big deal to like amongst board gamers. People are like, oh, hey, Twilight Struggle, which is kind of, it was like known, it's floating around the top 10. It's the top 10 game someone hasn't played. You know, <laughs> if you have someone who's played a bunch of games, oh, I've played all the, these nine and not Twilight Struggle. And so it had enough kind of word of mouth that way. And then I think enough people showed interest in the, the deluxe edition. I'm speculating here, by the way, but I think that just allowed it to hit like critical mass. And then it was a couple years after that, that I think it, it hit number one. It's a really weird number one for Board Game Geek. Like, there's a, it's a, it's really doesn't fit the profile for what that site tends to reward in the rankings. And all I can figure is uh, there was just a lot of, just a, yeah, just kind of a, a good word of mouth. It was a slow burn. And the people who liked it really liked it. And enough people had played it and rated it highly that that's what got it up there. Uh, eventually displaced by um, Pandemic Legacy. Yeah, indeed. So let's move on. Let's talk about our own critical impressions of it. I'll maybe maybe leave Matt to last because he's kind of spoiled this one already. But he's definitely the most enthusiastic out of us. For myself, uh, I'm probably the least familiar with it out of all of us. I've probably played the least... Uh, I've, I've, play, I've played it a few times now, but yeah, I've, I've definitely played it less at least out of the group. As I said earlier, I really liked how approachable it felt to me. Like I'd read some reviews about it before I bought it, and it is like the core of the system is very, very simple. You're basically just spending cards for points to manipulate sort of areas on the board in different ways, and there are consequences to some of those manipulations in the form of events that go to your opponent sometimes, and there are various ways to mitigate that. And that, that's a really interesting puzzle every turn. Your hand is just a just this interesting thing to solve every turn. And I, I kind of like, I know some more gamers really don't like the uncertainty in the queue and realignment roles, but I, I like uncertainty in my games a little bit. I like that, that sort of risk reward thing where you, there, you don't know quite what the outcome is going to be of, the, of your action. I've always liked that in games. I don't like purely determinist, deterministic games. So, so just, they just rub me up the wrong way. 
looking at you, Chess. Yeah, there's just a, there's just a really interesting puzzle in there. The two sides feel very different as well, despite the, the systems being identical on either side. I, I thought I was I was sort of pondering this in the in the notes that we write write up for the for the show. Was it sort of like an early sort of entry in sort of asymmetric asymmetry in games? I mean, we see a lot of that recently in the last few years with games like Root being the sort of like the big poster boy for that. Do you think it was a sort of like an early early entry for asymmetry? Because it's not quite asymmetry, but the, the sides are different. They they have different starting conditions, and they they feel and play differently. Matt, Matt's more of a card-driven wargamer than I am, and more of a wargamer than I am. But I think it's pretty standard in a lot of war games to see this right, kind okay. of see this kind of asymmetry. It's it, it comes down in a card-driven game. It comes down to what cards you have, but also just map position. And you yeah. just you don't start in the same position. It's not like a chessboard. You know, you don't have no. these completely symmetrical setups, and so that's why it ends up being feeling so different you like your your tactics are really different depending on whether you're playing the u.s or the soviets for the soviets you can get really aggressive early and um often get an early win uh in the early war as the americans generally will have to kind of hang on for three or four turns before it'll start really snowballing for them so yeah i i think it's pretty standard for the genre as as is my understanding so what about your what about yourself Nate? What, what, what how do you feel about the game uh, I, I really like Twilight Struggle, and yet I have a lot of complicated thoughts on it. And <laughs> I, and it's actually a lot of this was brought up from playing with you guys uh, and and some other people. I actually taught my son to play. Uh, wow. He's twelve years old, and he likes history stuff. He really likes twentieth century history, so it was a good fit. And he he oh. beat me, and everyone beats me at Twilight Struggle. I'm a I lose with alarming regularity, and it's not like I don't understand the game because I'm pretty familiar with it by this time, but. There's a certain opacity here that has really like it just it just feels like I'm I, I will always lose. <laughs> and that's always kind of like that's that's not enough to make me not like a game, but it is enough to make me say there's something like I'm not getting here. I will say you you talked about the uncertainty. I also like that, but I think what what Twilight Struggle gives you is beyond uncertainty. It's very strong swinginess. Um it's uh like that coup roll. If your coup roll doesn't go the way you need it to go a lot of times the game will just go pear-shaped very quickly or if uh certain cards come out at the wrong time if you're depending on what side you're on it can just be just a devastating kind of thing i don't that that's that's an observation more than a criticism uh it's just something that if you don't like that like there's there's very often moments in this game where the the game hinged on a moment now the the counter to that is that it's quite a subtle game. Um, every little move you make actually will pay off three or four turns from now in a lot of cases. You know, and by turns I mean like uh, there's ten turns in this game, but each each turn has like six or seven action rounds. So by turns I mean there could be you know ten twenty cards played before that one move you made has an impact. But everything just is the permutations are just staggering. And my first game of this was like four and a half hours long because I just sat there with my hand of cards thinking like, I don't, I, w I was completely frozen, which is not common for me. I'm a pretty impulsive player. I can just, yeah, sure. Let's go. Let's lose. I don't care. But this was just one, like I just saw the hand of cards and it just totally boggled me. What is great about twilight struggle. And the reason I am still really a fan of the game and really do enjoy it a lot is the tension of this game is unbelievable. Yeah. For a three or four hour game, it never feels like it's in the bag. You, you never feel that victory is certain until you finally won. Because there are so many ways that things can just unravel. And it creates an amazing feeling of suspicion. Like it's an emo it, it creates, and this is, again, Jason Matthews wrote and said this was a goal of the game. It creates the emotions of the Cold War. This sort of paranoia, this suspicion, this belief of like, I don't know why they're doing that, but I have to do it too. <laughs> uh, and that's like, it, it just, it creates this logic uh, in the game that is really great. I, I think what, one thing, and actually reflecting on this, having played with a few unfamiliar players recently, one thing I legitimately am not wild about, there's a ton of ways to lose this game accidentally. <laughs> Um, which we've discovered during our app plays. I think the first, right, the first yeah, game Nate and I played, I accidentally blew up the world on like turn three. Yeah. So, so there's a, 
Yeah, you have a DEFCON track and your DEFCON track, it tracks where DEFCON is. DEFCON 5 means situation normal. DEFCON 1 means nuclear war. And then Twilight Struggle, if you, there's a couple of things you can do with cards that will move the DEFCON down. And if you, you on your turn ever move the DEFCON down to DEFCON 1, you lose automatically. You triggered nuclear war, you lose the game. Well, that seems pretty straightforward. But there's so many times when you're like playing a card that lets your opponent take an action on on your turn and they can do some action that'll trigger nuclear war and it happened on your turn. So you lose. (laughs) There's a lot of that kind of stuff that can happen. That's really not evident until you've stepped on it three or four times. And I don't like I'm normally not don't have a too big a problem with sharp edges like that in a design. But it feels like when you're learning this game your first three or four games, you'll, you'll find new and exciting ways to lose in a way that you just, you, there was no, you, you just weren't prepared for it at all. Emergent loss conditions. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Well, it is. It's like that. It's a little like how, how Dune feels sometimes if you played the multiplayer Dune game with six people, it just was like, Oh, and I win. It was like, okay. (laughs) There's kind of that thing happening sometimes. Um, and if this is a smaller niggle, but I always felt like the realignment rolls, the coup rolls are really exciting. Realignment rolls always felt a little like it's like it's me- it's meant to be- it's meant to memoir represent like a soft political power kind of thing. But mechanically, they don't feel very well integrated with the rest of the game. And that always always kind of bugged me. But then I find myself using them sometimes. So it's really not that's more of a thing that just kind of annoys me personally than I would say an actual problem but it's a great game like it's really exciting it's not that hard to learn but it's very hard to play well and yeah. your game will often hinge on things that are out of your control which is fine it's, it's definitely got that easy to learn incredibly difficult to master kind of thing to it yeah what about for yourself Matt well you know I, I'm trying to follow what everything that Nate was saying there's some great stuff uh, so some some great observations there from both of you but couple of things I want to just call back on. The uh, first of which is is you were saying about the swinginess, uh, but also how the game is exciting down to the last minute because of the paranoia. And it, yeah, but you can't have one without the other. Right. I, I, you, you can't have a, a swingy game um, and retain that level of, of excitement and paranoia at the same time. The thing for me after playing it a long time is that I don't think a lot of those coup rolls are as pivotal as they seem. And a lot of the war events are not as pivotal as they seem. For me, the biggest problem with Twilight Struggle, uh, which is related to what you're talking about, is that the, the roles, those coup roles in the early turns, in the first two or three turns, absolutely dictate the shape of the map. It completely dictate the shape of the map. If It is not difficult to get into a situation where America is locked out of Europe, America is locked out of Asia, America is locked out of the Middle East. Middle East is less less problematic, but it's almost impossible to get back in once that's happened. Doesn't mean you're out of the game, although it can do. But uh, if you're because you, you you turn your attention to other areas, but that way that it's like you know a dice roll on the first turn, whether you're lucky or whether you're unlucky, you determine whether or not you ever get any significant foothold in Asia is kind of dispiriting, frankly. And the, the 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 only sort of like amelioration for that is the fact that if it, if it does swing really badly and you get locked out, because it's always America that gets locked out, as you mentioned, Nate, that the, um, uh, the Russians have a big upper hand in the in the early turns of the game. If America does does get locked out by the end of turn three, it's normally pretty obvious where it's going to go. The game may actually have ended already. You know, it's quite possible to get an early war victory for the USSR. And uh, and you rack up and start again or, or play something else, you know, and that is unfortunate. You know, that is a flaw in the design and, it, and it's a problem. But for all of the, you know, I suppose the issues that you raised, Nate, fundamentally, I don't care <laughs> because the, the mechanical experience of, of, of playing it, of what Ian raised, this, this brilliant, ever-shifting puzzle that is your hand and the board is just endlessly fascinating. And, and the, 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 the paranoia, the excitement, the way that you're constantly trying to look at that hand and going, oh my God, right, I've got these events of his that I hate or hers or theirs uh, that I hate. Um, and I want to try and get rid of those while ameliorating their effect. But I've also 
got to try and boost my presence in the Middle East if I can, or or get into South America if I can, and and when's the next story going to come up? And every time you make a play, or every time your opponent makes a play, and every time a dice is rolled, that puzzle changes. And you look at it when you're it's your next card. It's like my God, I've got to do this all over again. I've got to work this all out. <laughs> How am I going to deal with this? And it, it's just constant, constant damage control. Um, in, and, and that puzzle gets more complicated as the game goes on because you get more cards in the later war periods. Suddenly, suddenly yeah, it's amazing. It's a standard deviation curve, curve, though, to some degree because it peaks in the mid-war because what you yeah. do get at the end game is you'll find that there's nowhere you can have meaningful changes and in influence left on the map. It, the map gets crowded out. If it goes right to the end yeah. of the 10th turn, uh, the map actually becomes weirdly stable. And you see a lot more cards played as events rather than ops to try and to try and sort of like, like just just eke out um, a little bit of extra points here or there before the final scoring comes in. But you know that that's it for me really. I enjoy that shifting puzzle so so much, and and it's so exciting and so evocative for me. Because another thing I didn't mention, I think I really love about this game is the way that all the cards are tied into historical events, often in quite a thematic manner. And so you know, you've got the Marshall Plan, for example. You know, there's an early war called the Marshall Plan, which spreads a lot of American influence throughout Europe as, as, as European, Western European countries are thankful for America for the, the financial aid provided to them for, from the end of World War II. And I didn't realise this at the time, but actually, even in terms of war games, of card-driven war games, which all do this to, to a greater or lesser extent, this evocation of history is really thorough and learned and, and is really interesting you can you can actually learn a lot about the cold war just from playing the game uh, and reading the accompaniment guidebook it's it's really really very very well tied into to the history it seeks to portray and between that and the excitement of this ever shifting puzzle i would forgive the game essentially anything <laughs> it's just it's just too exciting to play it's just too great i i i should say i would much rather have a a deeply compelling strategic but also swingy game than one that was kind of stuffy and stayed and um much more predictable like the the what what we have is definitely the more interesting version uh, of that because of exactly what you say matt these are trade-offs right that's the thing about game design people act like well if we could just have this without this well no that was created by this you know yeah. that's how games always work and this is something a lot of a lot of modern gamers don't always understand because there's this desire to like optimize the experience and optimize the design to a point where it will be kind of frictionless. And when you play a lot of older games, and one reason we're doing this podcast is we look at older games and we say, no, because it made this seemingly old fashioned decision. And I don't think this is an old fashioned game. This game is over 15 years old now and still feels quite of the moment. It was actually an extremely forward looking game. But this is true of games in the 80s or something. Oh, the game has this this mechanic that I kind of hate, you know. And the reason the game produces the atmosphere it does is because it has that mechanic you hate, you know. <laughs> and so it's really important when we're talking about games to to kind of view them as a holistic thing. And you're absolutely right. I think that the Cold War the Cold War theme is really cool. I think we should talk about this a little because in the back of the book, the I love the I love the rule book just because of all the like you say the historical explanation of all the cards. And then the uh, the designer's notes, this is pretty common in a lot of his historical simulations. But uh, I, I love that Jason Matthews says that the goal was not to be factual about the Cold War. The goal was to kind of create the emotions of the Cold War. And it was wildly successful there. But there's things here that were demonstrably not true. This game subscribes to the domino theory, which is that if a neighboring country falls to communism or falls to whatever... Uh, you know, capitalism or whatever, that neighboring countries are now more vulnerable. Well, this was believed by certainly by the U.S. State Department and the U.S. government, but it's not true. Like it was not a thing, but it's in this game that kind of flies in the face of historical simulation. And I, I, I think there's room to criticize that if you're a simulationist, if that's why you play games like this. But I'm more of an experiential gamer, and it's an amazing experience. And I think because it's written in there as saying, like, no, this is, uh, you know, that, that was the goal. And, hey, mission accomplished. It did really well with that. The fact that it's a really long conflict over 45 years means that there can be a huge density of events. Like what you said, Matt, all these very iconic events that were play, that played out on TV, right? 
a lot of stuff like, oh, speeches and wars and events and stuff that people who are playing the game, hey, I remember when that happened. I'm just old enough to remember when some of this stuff happened. And that's a that's a really cool thing. In previous casts, we've opened up cans of worms on things. I'm going to open a can of worms now. One of the things I... I think one of the reasons I got rid of Twilight Struggle is I feel a little bit weird about playing games in historical settings, uh, especially wars, and especially very recent stuff like Twilight Struggle. How, how, do, how do you guys feel about that when you're, when you're playing these games? Because these are obviously very recent events. Current modern events are reminding everyone of the, this, this period of time. How do, how do you feel when you're approaching these games? I mean, it's kind of an operational level game, I guess. So you're less in the sort in the sort of the muck and the mud of actual war, but obviously it's it's talking about conflicts where thousands of people died and all, all sorts of little wars are just represented by single cards. The game feels kind of respectful to that period of history, but I don't know how you guys feel about playing games set in in history like this. I, I mean, this this actually is just a wider question, uh, of course, to do with any game that... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, Not just Twilight Struggle. ...represent unpalatable history, and there's quite mm. a lot of them. I suppose Twilight Struggle is particularly egregious because it's recent, as you say, uh, and because of its global scale. But my takeaway is how is it any different from reading a history book? How is it any different from watching a documentary on the television? How is it any different from attending a lecture class um, on the, the historical context? Just because we label it a game doesn't make it in any way, fund, you know, immediately or automatically less respectful than, than those other sources. You know, reading a book can be enjoyable, watching a documentary can be enjoyable. I just think this is a, a much wider discussion that goes way, way, way beyond the scope of games about how we frame and discuss and are respectful to the traumas generated by historical events. I, I don't have an answer, but I don't think it's something that you can particularly pin on, on war games just because they have the word game in the, in the, on the box. Yeah, I'm. It's a it's a question everyone's got to answer for themselves because everyone has their own line where that is. I yeah. several years ago I reviewed a game by Victory Point Games, and I think it was called The Last King of Scotland, and it was about Ugandan conflicts uh, with uh, Idi Amin, and uh, it, it was it was okay. And I reviewed it, and I had a couple people commenting like, "Hey, I'm really not cool with playing a game where you're playing as Ugandan forces under Idi Amin," and. I thought, you know, I get that. I, I, I'm, I, I didn't love the game, so it was easy for me to say, yeah, me either. <laughs> but I have, there are lines where I like, I, I, I am kind of, I, I, I think I want to be more of a war game fan than I am. But a couple of things I don't like doing. I don't super like playing World War II games where I'd play as the Germans. Yeah. A, a lot of people are really into that. That's fine. I don't. I don't think less of them unless I know them personally, and I and I know they really wish they were in the German Luftwaffe, you know. <laughs> but uh, or or things like the U.S. Civil War. I feel I feel pretty gross playing the Confederacy in the U.S. Civil War. Same kind of thing. Yeah. This is a little different, but there are things where if I think about it, it's like mm, I, I'm not wild about what this what happened in history and what this is kind of recreating. Uh, a good I, I've you know. Our viewers may not know this. I've spent a lot of my time living abroad from the U.S. I've lived in like six or seven different countries, and a lot of them are represented just as little squares on this board. And there's something kind of infantilizing about big countries like USSR and the USA saying that we're, what we're doing is we're, we're pulling the strings on all these other countries. Having said that, that's how those countries viewed themselves. That's how the U.S. and USSR viewed themselves in that conflict. And I actually think what's most valuable here, like I said, I remember the Cold War. My 12-year-old son, he was born in 2010. And so one thing I'm actually thinking, and if we play it again, I thought, you know who you should really ask about this is your grandfather, my dad, who was born in 1960. Ask him. He, was, he kind of remembers the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's, it's kind of cool that my son, who never has been able to experience, never didn't, didn't live through this very tense anxious time now kind of has this sense of like oh this is the emotional thing people were going through then that's pretty cool and it's pretty neat that a game can kind of bridge that and give you a sense of that a lot of war games don't 
put you in that historical emotional mindset in quite the same way. It's more of it's much more in in the nitty gritty kind of stuff. But this is so zoomed out that it really allows for that to happen. That's very cool. I, I really I really like your point about the infant, infantilization of like countries like that. And it's like your your point is that that's kind of the point. That's how America saw those countries. Right. It's how the USSR saw those countries. So the right. game gives you that feeling. And yeah, you can you can be repulsed by that feeling, and that's probably correct. You can yeah. say, oh, that's that's a horrible way to treat those countries. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. That's the way this conflict treated those countries as as just pieces on the board. That's really, yeah. and, really if, the point. and if someone had a real issue with, say, like, hey, I get to play as someone led by Joseph Stalin. That's kind of gross. Or if you have an issue with the civil rights history of bad civil rights in the U.S. and kind of the very mixed time that this was a lot of big setbacks, but a lot of big victories. And I don't really feel great about representing that. Hey, I get it. That's okay. It's all right to feel that way and to not be into the game because of that. I think it's. I just want to tell a little personal story. So I, I've long been interested in in military, if you like. But when I was a when I was a young man, I was a teenager. I also felt um, really the the horror around it, and and I I I, I carried this discomfort between the, being both horrified by something that I was interested in for for some years, and what eventually resolved it for me was reading a, a book about the Vietnam War called Dispatches, which I would recommend to anybody. It's an excellent book, um, written by a journalist, not a soldier, uh, who, who covered the conflict. And toward the end of the book, they, he has a conversation with another journalist who has got a, a letter back from his editor after filing copies saying, well, you know, can you, uh, can you rewrite this to try and take some of the glamour out of the conflict? And this journalist is in tears of laughter. He's laughing at the, at the absurdity of it. How on earth, he cries, can you take the glamour out of a helicopter? How can you take the glamour out of an AK-47? How take the glamour out of war? What a ridiculous notion. And, and really, I think that that exchange sealed for me the, the idea that war is awful, war is hell, you know, to, to, to pick up a cliche, but it is also something that is entombed very deeply in the human psyche, especially, sadly, you know, the, the male psyche, that, that call of, of violence, that call of spectacle um, is a source of fascination. And I don't think we can... I think the more we come to terms with that, the more that we, we, we admit that to ourselves, the better we can do at trying to stop it happening again. It's like what Robert E. Lee said when he said, it is well that war is so terrible, otherwise we should grow too fond of it. It's a huge tension in this genre and in a lot of other board game genres. We talked about when we talked about brass, we talked about kind of the uncomfortable relationship with colonialism. I like civilization games a lot. Hey, there's a lot of problematic stuff that comes up in civilization games. So this is, like Matt said, this is a definitely a broader topic, but I think it's worth, it's worth, worth hashing out. It's definitely worth touching on and something we'll touch on in, in future games as well when there are difficult subjects to talk about. But let's start well, bring things a bit to a close. Let's talk about influences on the current year. How... how how influential do you think Twilight Struggle is on sort of the current sort of state of tabletop gaming now? I mean, for me, I think it's still hugely influential, in fact, um, but for, for a slightly odd reason, perhaps, because um, while it opened, as I said earlier, the floodgates to people experiencing driven games, historical war games for the first time. Um, a lot of those people were also put off by its length and relative complexity, the length especially, as we said, this this is a game that can run four, four and a half hours. Um, and there, ever since Twilight Struggle has come out, I think there has been a slow drip, a constant slow drip of designers trying to encapsulate what it does in a smaller, faster, simpler game. The first instances of it were things like uh, Dawn of Freedom, Making of the President, the last of which, both of which, you know, had Jason Matthews as, as a co-credited designer. Um, they were not that good, generally, or they were not that much shorter or simpler. They, they kind of didn't work for one reason or another. And But more recently, I think it's, it's really got... You know, it's only the last five or six years or so that people have really started to master this brief. And um, so, one of the first best ones was, or the, the first good attempt 
that was 13 days, uh, which is a game about the Cuban Missile Crisis and other cards. I've, I've heard that's good and not played it, but I've heard good things about it. There's Watergate, which I know you want to talk about, Ian, uh, which is very oh, good. Uh, and most recently of all, there's, there's Red Flag over Paris, um, which is a, an hour-long game um, that really does a lot of what Twilight Struggle does um, on a much, much smaller board and with a much, much smaller deck. Um, but the thing, the reason, one of the reasons I keep coming back to Twilight Struggle over those games is because only Twilight Struggle has that that epic sense, that sense of, of dynamism, of, of openness, of, of anything can happen, um, which I don't ever think has been captured again. But people are still trying. You know, before this politically oriented games were not a thing or political oriented war games were not a thing now they are now we've got the small box games at the other end of the scale you've got the big huge epic coin games like uh, Fire in the Lake of the Vietnam War and um, uh, on Distant Plain the, the Afghanistan one uh, which are much much bigger uh, meteor games but Twilight Struggle launched all of these, really. Uh, they didn't exist as a genre before it, and its reverberations are still being felt. It's really interesting, Matt, when you talked about people keep trying to get this game in a more condensed form, and sometimes quite successfully, but that just to me speaks to the fact that it's, it, is a, it, it is a very light war game that people who really aren't that into war games are kind of having to reckon with in terms of length and complexity. And so there's this belief of like, if I could just have that, but in a shorter game, and well, at that point, you're not doing, you're not really a war game anymore. You're, you can draw a line from where you are here to there, but you've really kind of crossed genres at that point, which is fine. And you mentioned, you know, the, the coin games, the one I'm at this point at the time of recording, I'm really excited about uh, the one about the Philippines, uh, People Power, about the 1986 rev uh, revolution there. And but I know it's going to be a lot more complex than Twilight Struggle. In fact, I'm assuming it'll mostly be, be a solitaire game for me. And and it's interesting that people on either side of this, the hardcore war gamers see this and they're like, oh, I want that. But with a little more grit to it, things like uh, Labyrinth, the War on Terror, which is actually a, another very not designed by Jason Matthews, but uh, shares a lot of the same lineage. That is a somewhat more complex game, as I understand it, where you have these people who are on this side of it or, or like the coin game is more complex, but then people on this side of it who want it something shorter and cleaner and just that moves faster. And that just shows like the the worlds that Twilight Struggle is straddling uh, and the fact the game is still very well regarded. I think it is still GMT's mo best selling game. And I don't see that getting I, I, I don't see it getting moved from that anytime soon. I mean, it's still got an overall rank on BGG of 14. I mean, it has dropped, but it's, you know, it's up there still. With yeah. I just want to go back, actually, just, just to what we were talking about a minute ago with our, with our worms. It's always you that opened these cans of worms, Ian. Um, you, you obviously have a taste. It was Nate last time. It was me <laughs> last time. Sorry. Thank you. a little credit. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, was, it, was, it was you that used the phrase can of worms, Ian. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it wasn't Nate who opened it, but it was, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the point I was going to say is just to, to call back uh, what you were saying about um, about coin games because I was thinking recently about another upcoming coin game called The Troubles, which is which is uh, as you can probably guess from the name is about the wow. political situation in Northern Ireland. Now I grew up in Northern Ireland and, and I lived very personally through through some of that stuff, and uh, that actually I think really gives me pause for thought in in the sense of the conversation we were just having because. While I'm kind of interested to play it, I am quite uncomfortable about doing so as well, having seen yeah. the impact that that war or conflict had on people really up close and personal. Um, and while it's all very well for me to wax poetical about, about quotes from journalists uh, about the, 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 the glory of war or the, the glamour of war, I mean, I think it's very easy for somebody to say that if they've not had that first-hand experience or in a scenario in a conflict that doesn't have that first-hand experience it's a very glib thing to say and perhaps i shouldn't have been so so quick to say it i, I remember playing labyrinth for the first time uh, that nate was talking about um and for those unfamiliar it's uh, it's it's perhaps even more politically uncomfortable in the sense that it's the the, the war on terror so one side takes uh, uh, america the other side is a, a nebulous conglomeration of of islamic jihadis um, and the first time i ever played the jihadis of that there's a, there's a card in there called called martyrdom operation i think i can't remember exactly what it is or what it does um but you play 
play that and I, I played it in the game and I read the text on the card as I laid it down and it suddenly I realised what I had simulated. I had simulated yeah. suicide bombing and, and the deaths of dozens of innocent yeah. civilians and, and a, a, a probably a radicalised um, bomber. And, and it is the, the one and only time to this date that I felt physically sick from something that I had done playing a board game. Hmm. Um, it, it made me feel deeply uncomfortable. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it's very easy to trot out homilies when you're discussing these kinds of games, but that is perhaps not really being very uh, thoughtful or respectful for people who have to live it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my parents are both from Ireland as well, so, yeah, I'm sure they'd be equally uncomfortable playing that kind of game. I, thankfully, have never lived through that kind of conflict or really very close to such conflict, but... Yeah, the the situation you described in Labyrinth there, mate, would, uh, Matt would definitely uh, draw be a line for me. I don't think I'd want to play after that personally. I mean, uh, influence currently for myself, uh, like, like Matt says, I uh, I love Watergate. I've written about it. I think it's a fantastic little game. It's it's two player again, and it's um, simulating the struggle between the Washington Post and the Nixon administration over the Watergate scandal to like sort of expose Nixon and, and his corruption. And I, I think. I think I like it more because it is it is quick playing. It's like half an hour to an hour kind of thing, Watergate. And it does have that multi-use card thing again. And it's got that sort of your hand as a puzzle thing that Twilight Struggle has. And I really like it for that. You're right to say, Matt, that it doesn't have that epic feel. It doesn't have that scale that Twilight Struggle has by any means. But it is a great little game. And if you're after a sort of quick playing two-player game that has elements of the Twilight Struggle's kind of systems in it, I would strongly recommend Wargate. It's fantastic. Jamie has picked up Red Flag over Paris as well, and I would like to play that because that sounds pretty good. I mean, Twilight Struggle, playing that again with you guys has definitely got me interested for that sort of like more historical simulationist kind of gaming again. I'd, I'd definitely like to try some stuff. So that's that's been a nice, a, a nice sort of like revelation that I'd quite like to play some of those games and some of the stuff you described sounds really, really interesting. I think Watergate, Watergate is an interesting one because I, I like Watergate. I'm not going to say, say you know it, it's a bad game, terrible game, quite the opposite, very enjoyable. But I think it's worth discussing because it harks back to something Nate was talking about earlier because but the problem I have with Watergate is that it's it's got this really... It's got all the things you describe. It's all got this really cool thing you do where you have to trace paths on a pin board between, between clues to the actual, you know, through different uh, witnesses, I think it is, isn't it, through to the yeah. actual Watergate administration itself. Um, but the problem I have with it is that my recollection, uh, you'll have, you may have played it more recently than I have. I played it a few times when it came out and I haven't played it since, is that a lot of that plays second fiddle to the momentum. There's, there's like a momentum track that you have to be on the right side of to get points or something or to get, is that right? Yeah, it, it can do. Yeah, it depends. It depends how it goes. Like, there's a, there's definitely so there's a, there's a momentum track which sort of gives you init- uh gives you like tokens, and if you get enough of those tokens, you win the game. Uh, as the as the Nixon administration, and as you as you get them as the journalist, you sort of get powers that manipulate things. Yeah, yeah. But the point is that because it ends the game, because it can win you the game. In my experience, there was a lot of focus on on gaining and keeping momentum that put the other cool stuff in the game into the background and the reason i wanted to bring this up particularly as i say more experienced players you ian you know you may have a different take on that i'd be interested to hear it but that for me kind of just elevates what nate was saying about the way twilight struggle does so many different things you know that you take one little piece of that puzzle away you make one little change and the, and the, the whole house collapses um, because Twilight Struggle doesn't have that. You don't focus on one thing, in particular one mechanic over the other, even though it's still got the DEFCON track that can collapse the game in the same way. It doesn't become a focus of play in the same way that, that the momentum track in Watergate does. Yeah, it's it's definitely a focus. I've, my experience of playing it is that if you focus too much on that, you can lose sight of the board and find yourself basically backed into a corner and, and losing the next turn, potentially, because... The, either the journalists have connected things together or the journalists have been completely blocked out from being able to connect anything together because they haven't been paying enough attention. But yeah, it's not my experience that it overrides the game, certainly, but I haven't played it like the hundred times you've played Twilight Struggle. I've played it like a good sort of 10-ish, 12 times, something like that. I haven't like mastered it or anything. But yeah, it's, it's certainly not my experience that it overrides the game, but other other experiences may vary. I certainly had not mastered Twilight Struggle, even after all those games. <laughs> You'll lose regularly, including to you, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> well, if you will blow up the world. <laughs> We've all done it. We've all yeah, boycotted well, the Olympics and accidentally won the game for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Some conclusions on Twilight Struggle, gents. What, what would you say to people that are like coming to the game for the first time and like want to pick it up after listening to us? Do that. I would say, <laughs> uh, yeah. I would say yes. Definitely play it. It's great. Give yourself some time. It's not going to pay off right away. You'll need two or three games, really. I, I mean, I, I I did until I felt like okay, yeah. Now I get why people like this. Just because you need to learn the cards, you need to kind of be able to understand how you can accidentally lose. <laughs> and but but once you're there, you do have to get over a hump. Once you're there, it does really pay off. Just experientially, it's so rich, and it's so. Um, it's just, yeah, it's such a great narrative that forms uh, as the game goes on. So, and, and and it's a really good first step if you are interested in, in war games. Because, well, it's, uh, it's about as, as simple as the, the old, you know, map and shit uh, kind of war games go. It's a really good first step into that. You have a sense now of what goes into these games. And well, I never, I haven't gone that deep into it myself. It definitely has, has pointed me towards some other games that I really, really like even more than this one. So I, I think that's pretty cool. Yes. Strong recommend. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing I'd say about it is that it's a good entry into this type of sort of historical simulation war game. Uh, the core systems are pretty simple. There's a lot of depth there. And like uh, Nate says, you, it'll take you some time to sort of like, get handle on exactly what you can do and when but the core systems are very simple to grok and and get a handle on uh, so you can sort of get into that the more difficult actually figuring out how to do things side of things a bit more quickly so yeah strong recommend from me as well i mean obviously i'm going to recommend it because it, <laughs> it, I've, I've still not played anything better you know i played it first in 2007 and it's still the best game i've ever played and i, and I would unhesitatingly recommend it i think as you've suggested it's um, reputation for complexity is a little bit overblown the core systems are fairly simple it does have quite a lot of edge casey rules which can be really important like, like the defcon triggering thing is, is probably the, the biggest one but uh, the the good news for everybody and the fact it runs long as well but the good news for everybody is we do now have this app version as we've said uh, that, that is cheap to buy um, it will help teach you um, some of that stuff with the tutorial and the it has an absolutely abysmal ai that you can play against to hone your skills but don't copy what it does it's terrible it has no idea how to play the game um, but it, it will you know make you feel better about yourself while you learn and and if you have a good time with it uh you know it, it's worth mentioning that there's dozens of ways to play this um it, it's it's you can play on acts as I, as I mentioned uh look that up automated card tracking system loads of basic games you can play on there uh, there's also a site called war game room i think it exists wargameroom.com where you can play a whole load of card driven war games over over a java interface uh, and, and and hang out with people there so lots of ways to play it uh, but start with the app if you're interested and, and absolutely give it a go it, it, it remains as thrilling almost as thrilling after 100 plays as it did the first time i played it thank you so much for listening we'll see you next time bye for now thanks everyone bye Thanks very much for listening. Editing for the cast was done by me, Ian McAllister. The music for the cast was provided by my brother-in-law, David Oliver, with my friend, Alistair McLeod. Our logo was created by Rachel Wines Thrower. If you like what you've listened to, then the best way to help us out is by telling your friends about us and leave us a review and rating on your podcast host of choice. You'll also find the cast on thecultoftheold.com, where you can find writing about older games. You can follow the hosts on Twitter. I'm at the Giant Brain. Matt is at Mattthra, that's M-A-T-T-T-H-R. Nate is at Sanaldefanso, that's S-A-N-I-L-D-E-F-A-N-S-O. You can come and chat to the team and fellow game enthusiasts on our Discord, and there'll be an invite to that in the show notes. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so through our Ko-Fi, and I'll put a link to that as well. You can send the cast an email about any of the games we've covered, should cover, or anything else really, at cultoftheolduk at gmail.com. Bye for now. <laughs>